everybody take a breath through your nose. So just breathe through your nose. And now take another breath through your nose, but push your nose up just a little bit. And you, and you should find that it's easier to breathe when you push your nose up because we all have these nasal valves and that's how these breathe right strips work or these different strips work. They open up the nasal valve, but it has nothing to do with sleep apnea. Welcome to the Merck Manuals Medical Myths Podcast, where we set the record straight on today's most talked about medical topics and questions. I'm your host, Joe McIntyre, and on this episode, we welcome Dr. Richard Schwab. Dr. Schwab is a professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, where he is the chief of the Division of Sleep Medicine. And as you might guess, catching Z's uh, will be the focus of today's episode. Dr. Schwab, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Now, there are a ton of myths, questions, and even misunderstandings when it comes to sleep. How much sleep do we need? What happens when we sleep? And what happens when we don't sleep? But first, let's start off with a question that I'm not sure many of us even know the answer to. Dr. Schwab, why do we need sleep? Well, you're correct, Joe. We don't know the answer to that question. There's a lot of hypotheses, including that it creates restoration. Your body sort of restores itself. It gets rid of sort of junk that's in the brain. It helps consolidate memories, but we really don't know. On the other hand, every mammal we know of sleeps. So it has obviously an incredibly important function. We spend a, at least a third of our time sleeping. So, we, so it's clearly important, but we really don't know the answer to that question as yet. Now, is it true that you need eight hours of sleep exactly to be fully rested? And, you know, are people who say they only need a few hours of sleep wrong? What's the case there? So it's very individual. Most people need seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep. But you could, it's a bell-shaped curve. So there are people on the far end who can get by with four to five hours of sleep. On the other hand, there's people on the far end of that curve who need nine to 10 hours or 11 to 12 hours of sleep. So there are people who can get by with a shorter amount of sleep. But that's the exception. For most of us, we need seven and a half to eight hours to eight and a half hours of sleep. Now, for let's say maybe new parents who are struggling with uh, reduced sleep, and even others who uh, feel they don't get enough sleep in general, does your body eventually get used to sleeping fewer hours each night? Not really. So you develop chronic sleep deprivation, and then you can fall asleep driving, or you won't perform well at work. Now you can catch up on your sleep. So you can catch up on the weekends, and that's what most of us do. You know, we get sleep deprived during the week and catch up on the weekends. And one of the reasons that people drink coffee is that to keep them awake, because we're chronically sleep deprived. But you can't get up by with less sleep. It's going to affect you one way or another. Um, so that doesn't work. You can again bank it. You can catch up on it but chronic sleep deprivation is not a good idea. Now, let's say you're having difficulty falling asleep one night for whatever reason. Is it best to stay in bed until you fall back asleep or get out of bed and do something else in the meantime? So it really depends on what you are. If it only happens once, maybe it's fine to stay in bed, but for the most part, if it's more of a chronic problem, you wanna get out of bed, go to a quiet corner, read a sort of a dull book, wait till you get sleepy again, and then go back to sleep. People can get frustrated in bed if you can't sleep and you just sort of sit there and you start getting angry. You start looking at the clock, which is a bad thing to do. Never look at the clock, turn the clock the other way. Um, but in general, one night of sleep deprivation isn't going to be bad and you'll usually sleep fine the next night. But if you're, it's more chronic, you want to get out of bed until you get sleepy again. Now, is there an ideal temperature 
for maximizing the best sleep possible? Is it better to be cold, warm? What's that, you know, what's that exact temperature that you should be at if you can, if you can make it happen? Yeah, I don't think there's good science to answer that question. And it, and it is a lot individual, but as a general rule, colder is better um, for most people. But again, that's not everybody. And typically your bed partner may like a certain room temperature and you may like a different room temperature or you want more covers or not. So it can become complicated depending on who your bed partner is and what their needs are. Now, you mentioned this a little bit um a little bit earlier, but you say, you're saying when it's the weekend and we get the opportunity to sleep a little bit longer, we can actually, quote unquote, make up for lost sleep during the week. That is actually the case. It's not where, um, you know, you, you can't actually make up for, for that lost time. No, you can make it up. Um, ideally, you don't. it would be best not to make it up. If, if you had your best situation, you'd always go to bed at the same time, always get up at the same time. Your body gets used to it. But most of us can't do that. We're not getting enough sleep during the week. And so you catch up on the weekends and you sleep in. That's a good idea. And for most people, when they go on vacation, they may be very sleep deprived and it can take a week or two for them to really recover, but they can recover. So I do think you can, you can make it up, uh, but you have to have the ability to make that up. If, if you're working you know, every day of the week, you're not going to be able to catch up. Now, for those of us who sometimes have trouble falling asleep, we've all heard the uh, the, the wives' tale of counting sheep uh, to help yourself fall asleep. Does that or something similar actually work to help uh, get people to fall asleep? So again, there's not a lot of science behind counting sheep, uh, but focusing on something that your your brain can just sort of just become sort of subtle and just monotonous, and it's not something where you're really actively thinking about something. That's a good idea, whether you're tapping your finger, whether you're counting numbers, you know, counting back from 100, counting sheep. So I do think that general concept, it kind of just dulls your brain. You just don't want to be able to do something where, oh, my gosh, what do I have to do today? What am I going to – I have to have this, 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 and this have to get done. I'm not going to get it all done. And so the less you activate your brain, the better. So I think counting sheep actually – from that standpoint, is probably a good idea. Let's say you know you usually wake up around seven o'clock in the morning, but you don't need to technically get out of bed until seven thirty. Is hitting snooze every morning a bad thing? Is it okay? You know, what is your what is your perspective there? It's a terrible thing. You should never ever hit the snooze button because that wakes you up. And so you might have been in REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep or dreaming sleep, and now that alarm knocked you out of that sleep, which is restful, really important sleep. So the message is never use the snooze button. Set the alarm for the last possible moment, and once it goes off, get up. Do not ever use the snooze button. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, let's say you know you want to have a coffee. We're recording this at one o'clock in the afternoon. Let's say you want to have a coffee around three or even after dinner, uh, say seven or eight o'clock. Does having a coffee with caffeine in it too late in the day affect your ability to sleep? For most people, it will. For people who are chronically drinking coffee, I don't think it does. Uh, but for most people, caffeine has about a half life of twelve hours. So you don't want to drink coffee pretty much after lunchtime. Um, especially if it's intermittent. If it's, again, if someone who's chronically getting drinking coffee, they may get acclimated to it, it won't matter. But someone who's not used to that, I would not recommend caffeinated coffee at dinner or even really after lunchtime. Hmm. Interesting. Now, we all have different preferences when it comes to exercise. Some people like working out in the morning, super early. Some people prefer the afternoon. Some people, it's in between. Does when you exercise have any effect on how you sleep? Is it better to exercise in the morning or night uh, when it comes to um, your, your sleep health? 
there's no right answer there, except you don't want the exercise to affect your sleep or your sleep time in any way. So if you have to get up early, if you're getting up at five in the morning to exercise and you don't go to bed early enough, well, now you're going to be sleep deprived. And so that's a bad idea. You also don't want to exercise close to bedtime because it's going to make it hard for you to fall asleep. So you want to exercise no, within two hours of sleep, you do not want to exercise. But pretty much every, the rest of the time, it doesn't matter. I think the easiest time to exercise is probably when you get home from work, if you're on a normal schedule, before you have dinner. But that's not easy either. And obviously, exercising on the weekends is easier. Um, but I don't love getting up early in the morning to exercise uh, because I think unless you're going to bed early enough, you're going to lose sleep on that end. And again, exercising close to bedtime is a bad idea. That all being said, exercise is a really good thing to help you to sleep, especially with insomnia, because it makes you more sleepy, more tired. So I really like exercise for lots of reasons, but you do need to time it appropriately. Now, let's get into a little bit of uh, the foods that we eat or uh, foods that we drink uh, and how that affects our sleep. So let's say you go out for a couple of drinks after work or on the weekend. Is sleep after a night of drinking bad sleep? Is it good sleep? I know some people uh, have an easier time falling asleep after consuming some alcohol, but is it actually a still restful sleep? No. So alcohol is really bad for sleep. It does put people to sleep. So it puts you to sleep, but then it fragments your sleep. So you'd be up all night or you may not even wake up, but your sleep is going to be fragmented. And one of the reasons people feel sort of a hangover the next day isn't necessarily the alcohol. It's, or it's partly the alcohol, but it's also partially related to your sleep is fragmented from the alcohol itself. And so alcohol is really bad for sleep. Again, nobody can do this, but if you had a drink at lunchtime rather than dinner time, and it was out of your system by the time you went to sleep, that would be fine. But alcohol, any time period close to your sleep period is a bad idea. Now, how about just generally eating towards the end of the night? Does eating too late at night before we have to go to sleep affect our ability to get actual restful sleep again? Not necessarily, but it does partly depend on what type of food you eat. So if you eat a food that can cause heartburn or reflux, and then that's going to wake you up, that's a bad thing. And if you eat probably too much food before you go to bed, it's going to the carbohydrates is going to rev you up. So that's a bad thing. But you also don't want to go to bed sleep hungry because if you go to bed hungry, you may have trouble. That may wake you up. So ideally, not too much food. A little bit of food before bedtime is probably fine. Um, and then staying away from anything that's going to cause heartburn because that could wake you up. Now, uh, how about cannabis? Uh, some people swear by cannabis and its ability to help them fall asleep. Does that have the same effect as alcohol where, uh, you know, experiencing or doing uh, cannabis before bed uh, does not give you that same type of uh, quality sleep? So we don't really know as much about cannabis as we do with alcohol. Alcohol clearly fragments your sleep. Cannabis, it's really good for pain. Um, and it's it from that standpoint, if you have chronic pain, you may have trouble sleeping. So I think cannabis in someone who's got chronic pain is a really good idea. The one thing about cannabis that I worry about is that when you come off of it, the patients often develop pretty significant insomnia. So if you're using cannabis on a short-term basis, you need to plan for the fact that when you come off of this, that your sleep may be difficult to achieve because of insomnia. But its effects otherwise haven't been super well studied. I don't think it's bad. I, I would tell you that you shouldn't be smoking marijuana. I think if you're going to do this, edible, edibles is the way to go because I think you don't want to affect your lungs. But I think cannabis in general, especially in people with chronic pain, is a good thing for sleep. Good, good. Good to know. 
Now, how about sleep medications for those folks who have chronic insomnia? Like you mentioned, uh, they may want to turn to some medications or prescriptions to um, to help them get to sleep. Are all sleep medications harmful? We've heard some, I'm sure, horror stories, but what's the um, what's the science behind that? Yeah, for most for the most part, sleep medications are harmful. Um, the one that probably isn't totally harmful is melatonin, especially at lower doses, because it's a naturally occurring hormone. So it doesn't really get you into as much trouble. It doesn't often work super well. And if you're going to take it, usually take it about an hour before bedtime. But most over the all over the counter sleeping pills uh, have Benadryl in them. And Benadryl's got a very long half-life. It's never been shown to be a good sleeping pill. It's basically antihistamine. It puts you to sleep, but it's a really bad choice. And all the prescription medications, they're also bad. They're designed to be used for six weeks, but people stay on them forever. They have memory effects. They have fall risks. So one of the issues is you take a sleeping pill and you walk to go to the bathroom. Now you have the sedative on board and you trip on the carpet and you fall and hit your head or you break your hip, and you can die from that. So sleeping pills in general, really bad idea. The way we treat chronic insomnia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's counseling to teach you how to sleep, sleep relaxation techniques, sleep hygiene techniques. They make your sleep more efficient by reducing it and keeping a sleep diary. So for the most part, I don't recommend sleep medications at all anymore. In fact, I take people off of sleep medications. I do that much more than actually starting them. Now, let's say you're you're getting ready to go to bed. You hop in bed, you put your phone uh, on your nightstand to charge, and then you spend 25, 30 minutes looking at your phone before you fall asleep. We've all heard, uh, I'm sure, some of the rumors that looking at your phone and it's blue light is bad for your sleep health. Is that actually the case? The bed should be used for sleeping. Uh, nothing really, nothing else. You should never do any work in the bed. You shouldn't be really watching TV even in the bed, um, and looking at your phone or working or looking at your computer independent of the light effects are a bad idea because you just get in this habit of, okay, I'm not associating the bed with sleeping, and that's really what you want to associate with. But anything that's going to cause blue light, it's going to activate you, it's going to wake you up. So no, no, leave the phone downstairs, turn it off, don't, don't look at it in bed, don't bring your computer into bed, you know, use the bed for sleeping. Now, uh, let's say it's Sunday afternoon. It's a beautiful day outside. The windows are open. You decide to doze off on the couch for 30 minutes or 15 minutes or maybe even an hour. Does a nap in the middle of the day ruin your sleep cycle at night? So most of us are sleep deprived. So the answer is no. I think if you weren't sleep deprived, maybe. And so if you went on vacation and you were, you were fine and you're getting enough sleep, then taking a nap, assuming you're maybe in the second week of that vacation, because the first week you're probably still sleep deprived, um, it, then it might affect your sleep. But for most of us, because we're sleep deprived, a short nap isn't going to do anything to hurt you. Now, when it comes to our bodies and how we actually sleep, whether it's back, side, stomach, is there a preferred, uh, preferred way to sleep from your perspective? Typically on your back uh, may make you start to snore or cause sleep apnea. So from a sleep apnea standpoint, back sleeping is not a good idea. Uh, the side or stomach is fine. Some of that may depend on how your back feels in those different positions. And some people feel better on their stomach or their side. But in the supine position on your back, that's a, a risk factor for sleep apnea. So typically, Especially if you're heavy, you don't want to sleep on your back, but the other positions are fine. Uh, I think it's patient preference. Is talking in your sleep a sign of another more serious health condition? So let's say you're you know, babbling along uh, in the middle of the night. Is that a sign that you should 
have something else checked out about your health, or could that just be someone's um, someone's just way of sleeping? If you start screaming in your sleep, or you're acting out a dream, or you start to sleepwalk, get out of bed and start to sleepwalk, those are different stories, and you have to protect the bedroom if that happens. But actually just talking in your sleep, not a problem. The only downside is it might wake up your bed partner and disturb their sleep a little bit, but it's not going to affect you in any adverse way. I do know that you are quite a bit of an expert when it comes to sleep apnea. Um, do breathe strips actually work to stop someone from snoring or prevent someone from suffering from sleep apnea, or do more severe or more serious uh, methods uh, need to be used uh, to prevent sleep apnea? Uh, no, they don't work. So for the audience, everybody take a breath through your nose. So just breathe through your nose. And now take another breath through your nose, but push your nose up just a little bit. And you and you should find that it's easier to breathe when you push your nose up because we all have these nasal valves and that's how these breathe right strips work or these different strips work. They open up the nasal valve, but it has nothing to do with sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is something back in your pharynx, usually behind the soft palate or the base of the tongue and the, the airway's too narrow back there and that's why you collapse your airway and it, it closes. But the breathe right strips don't do that. Um, and so they really don't work well at all. And although they're inexpensive, I wouldn't waste your time spending money on them. Dr. Schwab, a lot of us, I'm sure, either know someone who snores, has snored before, or does snore regularly. You were talking a little bit offline that snoring in general, just the idea of snoring and for someone snoring is actually not normal and is, is uh, a sign of a more serious issue. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, if you're snoring, it really means there's something wrong with your upper airway. It, it, get, it gets narrow. And, and if that's the case, you should be potentially evaluated for sleep apnea because that's obviously has multiple complications, adverse consequences related to sleep apnea. There are some data on the relationship of snoring to stroke. And, be, and the reason that occurs is that when you snore, it causes vibration to your upper airway. You're and that causes trauma to the carotid artery, which, stand, which is up in your neck. So you're snoring and you get this vibration and maybe there's even issues about snoring and its relationship to stroke. We don't know that for sure, but clearly snoring is a risk for sleep apnea and you shouldn't be evaluated, especially if you're sleepy. And just to remind the audience, um, alcohol makes snoring worse. So you do not want to drink independent of its, sleep, its ability to cause sleep fragmentation. Now, finally, what are some of the methods that you do recommend for someone who is suffering from sleep apnea? What should they do um, if they do suffer from it? Like, what's you know, who should they go see first? And what are some of the um, ways that you work with your patients to solve those issues? Right. So first, this, what are the symptoms of sleep apnea? So first, the most common one is snoring. And the second most common one is daytime sleepiness. So if you have either of those different things, you should be evaluated by a sleep specialist for sleep apnea. Typically, you're going to need um, a sleep study. The primary risk factor is obesity. Um, it's not the only risk factor, but if you listed 10 risk factors, obesity would be the first eight. The other ones are where your jaw is back, something we call retronathia, where you have a recessed chin. It makes your mouth small. And then just so everybody knows, alcohol also worsens snoring and worsens apnea. If you don't drink alcohol, you may not snore. Once you drink alcohol, you may become a snorer. And a snorer who drinks alcohol may become an apneic. And an apneic who has who has alcohol, their apnea will get worse. Um, but there's simple treatments for sleep apnea. Sometimes it's position where you just sleep on your side and your apnea is resolved. And there's CPAP, which stands for continuous positive airway pressure. It's a little mask you wear over your nose that 
works as a pneumatic splint to open up your airway to basically just stents open your airway. There's oral appliances that, that are designed to pull your jaw forward because the base of your tongue, the part you can't feel, inserts into your jaw. So if you move your jaw forward, that will open up the airway. And then there's surgery for the more refractory sleep apnea. And there's now something called hypoglossal nerve stimulation, which is basically a pacemaker for your tongue and it pushes your tongue towards your lips. So there's lots of different treatments for sleep apnea. And once they're treated, they feel like they've had a brain transplant. They're no longer sleepy. Uh, they, their blood pressure may get better. They, and, and just treating sleep apnea will help prevent heart attacks and strokes and high blood pressure and atrial fibrillation and cardiac arrhythmias. So there's lots of reasons to, you want to treat your apnea and you obviously don't want to have any of these medical complications. So uh, it's a great thing it's a, and it's easy to treat it. So I would encourage anybody again who is sleepy during the daytime and they snore and especially if you're a little bit overweight to get evaluated for sleep apnea. Now, Dr. Schwab, as we close out uh, this episode here, I want to give you a chance to let our listeners know of some places they can go if they have questions about their sleep health, if they have questions about one of your specialties, sleep apnea, where should our listeners go to find out answers about improving their sleep health or just sleep health in general? So in general, I think going to see a sleep physician wherever you live is a good idea. Um, go to a sleep center, potentially accredited sleep center. You can come to the University of Pennsylvania. There's a sleep disorder center there. You can see me or some of the other physicians. So I think that's a good idea. If you're looking from a sort of a publication standpoint, the Merck Manual is an excellent source. You'll get lots of information there and you'll be able to answer most of your questions uh, about your sleep conditions. All right. Well, Dr. Schwab, I want to thank you again uh, for joining us uh, on the Merck Manual's Medical Myths podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, uh, and I hope our listeners certainly learned something. So uh, I'll leave them with something we say at the end of every episode at the Merck Manual's. Medical knowledge is power, so pass it along. <laughs>